All right. We are in uh, Genesis chapter 46, which we started last week. And uh, there's kind of three sections to the chapter. The first uh, seven verses talk about Jacob and his family's departure from Canaan for Egypt. <clears throat> and then beginning in verse 8 uh, and uh, down through verse 27 is uh, a genealogy or a list of all the people, uh, basically of all the people who went into Egypt from Canaan. And then in verse 28 and through the end of the chapter, it talks about the arrival of the family in Egypt. And so last week we looked at the departure for, for Egypt from Canaan. And we looked at about, we read about half of the genealogy and we talked a little bit about the genealogy. <clears throat> and today I'd like to pick up uh, and read the second half of the genealogy and talk a little bit more about the genealogy and then go on to talk about the arrival of the family in Egypt. So that's what we're, that's where we are and that's what we are covering. So last week we were looking at verses 1 through 18. So look down through those verses and see if you can remember anything we talked about last week. And then if you can, share it with us. <laughs> Okay. 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 We're talking about how uh, Jacob, the name Jacob, kind of represents him from a, a very human perspective, and and also has connotations of his character and the flaws in him. And Israel represents kind of the spiritual side of Jacob, and the promises and the covenant and the national headship and all that sort of thing. And and so the the narrator in this part of the in this part of the story keeps referring to him as Israel because he's wanting to emphasize this this uh, aspect of of uh, Jacob. But God, when He speaks to him here, speaks to him and calls him Jacob. Actually, does more than once. And uh, so He calls him Jacob because at this point Jacob is apprehensive. He's fearful. Uh, and so when God speaks to him, he's addressing to him as how said where he is. And we talked about how uh, how all of us, uh, even though in one sense we are since we are born again, if we are born again, uh, since we are born again, uh, we are Israel. We are we have these spiritual promises and covenants that God has made with us. We have all these exciting things that God has done for us. Uh, but oftentimes we kind of live like we're Jacob's <laughs> and, and God, as Hal said, God meets us where we are and deals with us uh, in, in, that, uh, in that frame of mind. So what is it that what is it that Jacob is apprehensive about at this point? Yes, he told Isaac not to go Isaac. to Egypt. Yeah, uh, I don't have that reference here in front of me right now. Uh, 
uh, it was, okay, it was probably back about chapter 30, um, uh, let's see, probably about chapter 33, 34, um, now it's sort of, there you go, yeah, there you go, yeah, that's it. What's the, what's the, what's the reference? Okay, all right. Okay, yeah. Okay, so, so Abraham had had problems in Egypt and Isaac had been specifically told by God not to go to Egypt. And so now Jacob is getting up and he's going to Egypt. He obviously has some apprehension about this and this is probably some of the reason. I don't think we addressed this last week, but one of the things that I intended to talk about um, is that it is the lesson that we can learn from the fact that God had specifically prohibited Isaac from going to Egypt. But with Jacob, he promises that he'll go with him. And he actually is actually an endorsement of his going to Egypt. And and it's, I think, instructive to us how God deals with us differently. And sometimes sometimes there are things that God may tell you that you're not to do, that he gives another believer liberty to do. Or there may be things that God gives you liberty to do that to another believer he tells them, no, I don't want you doing that. <laughs> because God is God has his own program, he has his own agenda, he has his own schedule of what he's doing, and we are individuals, we have different needs, we have different vulnerabilities. And so, uh, of course, there are many things in Scripture which are very explicit that are absolutely prohibited or absolutely commanded. We know we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We know we're not to commit adultery. There are certain absolutes in Scripture. Those are not kind of the kind of things where I can say, well, God says you, to, to you that you can't commit adultery, but, but I think I can do it. Obviously, uh, that's not what we're suggesting here. But there are many areas, and Paul deals with some of these in Corinthians and other places, there are, there are many areas in which there is, there is liberty to do one thing or another for one person but another person feels before the Lord that they can't do it. And, uh, and, and, and we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be conscious of that. And, so I, and I think we need to be careful not to judge one another. For the person who has liberty, not to judge the person who doesn't feel they have liberty. And for the person who doesn't feel they have liberty, not to judge the person who does feel that they have liberty. And, and this whole thing with Isaac and Jacob is kind of a little example of that. Okay? What else? <laughs> okay, Pharaoh told him not to take, not to bring anything. Okay, but when Jacob goes, he takes everything. He takes all his possessions. He takes all of his cattle. Uh, he takes all of his sheep. He takes. Uh, he takes everything and he takes all of his descendants, of course, all of his family. He takes, he takes everything. Why does he take everything? Okay. They were the things that God had given to him. They were the, they were the fulfillment of God's promises, all these possessions and everything. God had promised that to him. And he's not about to leave the kind of all this stuff that God has done for him. He's not about to leave that behind. Those are, those, those things are his by, by right of God having given them to him. And he's not going to leave them behind. They're precious to him. And so he takes 
everything with him. He takes all of his possession and he takes all of his family with him. He doesn't leave everybody back. Why else does he take everything? What does that imply about his... He ain't coming back, okay? He recognizes that this is a long-term proposition. And particularly by the time he gets to Beersheba and God begins to tell him that he's going to become a mighty nation down there, or a great nation down there, it's pretty clear they're going to be down there a while, okay? And so one of the reasons he takes everything with him is because he understands that this, this is a long-term commitment. I don't know when I'm coming back. And uh, so I'm taking everything with me because I, I don't know when I'll ever see it again. Okay, what else did we talk about last week? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. We talked a little bit too about the genealogy. Uh, we're just we're just getting started uh, talking about that, and we'll talk more about that uh, at some length today, uh, because there there's a, there's a couple important things that we should consider from this uh, genealogy. But he lists here the names of the uh, sons of Israel. Uh, whom uh, Jacob took with him down into Egypt. So beginning in verse 8, it says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. And then he begins to list uh, these sons and, and actually grandsons of Jacob and, and probably in some cases even great grandsons. Oftentimes when Scripture uses the term sons, it's using it in, the in the sense of descendants. So it might be somebody's grandson or great-grandson or great-great-great-grandson. We speak of Jesus being the son of David. <laughs> Obviously, he's not the immediate son of David. He's many generations removed. But, but uh, so at any rate, these are the sons of Israel or the sons of Jacob who have gone down into Egypt. Uh, do you remember anything we said about this genealogy last week and some of our kind of introductory thoughts about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of these names, it says these are the ones who went down to Egypt, but it's clear that some of these names were not even born at the time of the removal into Egypt, right? So we'll talk more about that today and the significance of that, why that's important to us, okay? But uh, so he begins to list all these names, and, and uh, this is really a quite involved uh, uh, genealogy. And uh, there are comparable genealogies or parallel genealogies uh, in other places in Scripture, in Numbers and in other places in Scripture and uh, in Chronicles. And uh, you can spend a great deal of time comparing these parallel genealogies. Uh, and there are a number of difficulties that have to be worked through and commentators spend a great deal of time on that. And, uh, and, and I don't want to do that today, and I'll explain to you why uh, in a little bit. But, but let's just pick it up. In the first, uh, last week, we read through the first part of the genealogies, and we read about the, the children or the sons of, of uh, Israel that were born to Leah and, and those that were born to uh, Leah's maid Zilpah. Okay? But picking it up then in verse 19, we begin to read about the 
children who were born uh, to the uh, to uh, Rachel and uh, to her handmaid Bilhah. And so let's pick it up in verse 18 uh, and verse 19, excuse me, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter and then we'll talk some more about this genealogy and go on from there. These are the uh, the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and uh, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin and Hupin and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham, the, uh, excuse me, yeah, sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel and Guni and Jezer and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban bore to, uh, who Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the household of Jacob who came to Egypt were seventy. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, and you may, uh, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Okay. Well, there's a, actually a, a great deal in this passage to think about. Uh, this is one of the passages that, that kind of surprises you when you really begin to dig in it. <laughs> You first look at it and you go, well, how much is there there for us to think about? But actually, there's quite a bit. On on this issue of the genealogy, uh, when the genealogies are placed in Scripture, they're placed there for a reason. It's not just so the Lord can test your perseverance and read through the Bible once a year or something like that. But they're actually there for a reason. They're, and, the, and they're placed there with a, with, a, with a purpose to instruct, of course, the primary or the first readers. And we, we need to remember that the Pentateuch and Genesis was initially written for the children of Israel in the wilderness as they're preparing to go into the land of promise. And they're just, being, uh, they're just really beginning to begin their life as a nation. 
And uh, so when we encounter these genealogies in Genesis, and we've encountered several of them, they are there for the purposes of instructing the children of Israel about their heritage uh, and, and so that they would understand about themselves and what God is doing. Okay? But they are also there not only for the children of Israel and for them to understand their history, but they have a theological meaning to them. They have a theological significance to them. And sometimes we can get so bogged down in the names that we miss the theological significance of them. And one of the things that's interesting about this genealogy, as I mentioned, when you compare it to the parallel genealogies in Numbers and Chronicles and, and, uh, and other places, when you, when you compare this list with the others, you, you find there's the name, some names are different or, uh, or the way they achieve the number 70 seems to be different or whatever. And even as we look at this genealogy, there are some obvious problems with it as we read it that, that make us wonder or puzzle. You know, how does he arrive at this number 66? Okay, uh, that's a question that, that comes to our mind. And then it's really kind of instructive how he gets to the number 70. And in fact, commentators aren't even in agreement on how he reaches the number 70. Who does he include and who is he excluding in this number 70? But it is interesting that in order to get to the number 70, he includes two women in his genealogy. Well, that's pretty much unheard of, okay? But he includes Dinah and he includes Shelah and and the question is, why does he include these two women and no other women in his genealogy, but he includes those women in order to get to the number 70? Uh, or at least in including those women, he gets to the number 70. I should put it that way. And so one of the things that's interesting, however you resolve, and commentators resolve some of these questions in different ways and address them in different ways, but however you uh, uh, resolve these questions that you might have or the problems that you might have with this genealogy, one thing is clear. The number 70 is important to the writer of this genealogy. He wanted to get to the number 70. And exactly how he got to the number 70 is a bit of a puzzle to some of us, okay? But one of the things that's clear is that there is some significance to the narrator here uh, of the number 70. Now, of course, we believe that Moses recorded this uh, in the wilderness, but how he came up with this genealogy, we don't know. Presumably, he had, it, it had been passed down to him, perhaps verbally or perhaps in writing, and he's simply recording now the genealogy that's been passed down to him. We believe, of course, that he is doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but so uh, we don't know exactly who the original narrator of the genealogy is, whether it was Moses or somebody before him. But what is what is significant to to Moses or to whomever Moses is recording at this point? What is clear is that this number 70 is significant. Okay. Now, of course, the number 70 is the multiplication of what two numbers? I knew somebody was going to do that. I knew you were going to do that. Seven and ten. There we go. Keep him straight there, Debbie. <laughs> You're right, Hal. I knew as soon as I asked the question, somebody was going to say 35 and three. <laughs> you were right. Your math is correct. But the two numbers that are significant are seven and ten. And both of these are numbers of completion. The number seven... And the number 10 in Scripture represent the, among other things, represent the idea of completion. 
And so what we have here in this number 70 is we have the multiplication of these two numbers of completion. So the sense here is that this, this number represents a sense of completion or an entirety. Okay. And the idea then that's being conveyed is that there is some unit here which is going down into Egypt which is whole and which is complete. Okay. And so that's one of the things that we understand from this number. Another thing that we understand from this number is in Deuteronomy, when Moses is talking to the children of Israel, he compares the, the children of Israel, the number of the children of Israel, of Israel and his children who went down into Egypt with the number that they now have having come out of Egypt. Okay. And when they come out of Egypt, they're probably about two million strong. Okay. And so they come out of Egypt and they, begin, they, and they come out divided into their tribes. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. They come out divided up in their tribes. But as you, if you were one of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and, and you're traveling through the wilderness, you look at this massive group of two million people walking through the wilderness. It's probably kind of an overwhelming number. Or when you were in camp, uh, when, the, when the pillar of uh, fire or cloud would stop at night and you would camp and you would camp around the tabernacle arranged by your, uh, arranged by your tribes, three tribes on each side of the four sides of the tabernacle, and you would camp there. And as you would look out over that encampment, you would see this massive encampment of, of two million people. And what Moses is reminding the children of Israel as they read this for the first time, if you will, what he's reminding of is we didn't start this way. We started with 70 people. And in Deuteronomy, when, when, when Moses does that, it, it's clear that the, that the idea of 70, in addition to communicating the idea of completeness or wholeness, is also intended to, com to communicate the idea of smallness in comparison to the vast great multitude that came exiting out of Egypt. Okay? So what are the lessons that we want to learn from this genealogy? What are the spiritual lessons or the theological lessons that are there for us? Well, one of them is that, is that the, this group that is exiting out of Canaan and going into Egypt is a unit. It's a cohesive unit. We talked about how a segmented genealogy as opposed to a linear genealogy as this one is a segmented genealogy. One of the purposes of a segmented genealogy is, is to show the cohesiveness or the interrelatedness of everybody in the genealogy. And so the idea here is they were a unit. They were one. This was one family. Okay? It was a small family, but it was one family. And they are all the descendants of Israel, of Jacob. And as descendants of Jacob, all of them as one family are fellow partakers of the promises and covenants of God to their father Jacob, to his father before him Isaac, and to his father before him Abraham. So they are one unit. They are the incipient nation, if you will. They are the seed of the great nation that will come out of Egypt uh, 400 years later that Israel reads about when they first received their copy uh, of Genesis. And, and so 
one of the things that we see in this list of names and and we could get, as I said, we could spend quite a bit of time just looking at all these different names. But what is striking about these names is, first of all, we have the 12 sons of Israel and those 12 sons of Israel. Generally, they represent what? As far as the future of Israel is concerned. Each one is the what? Okay, each one is a tribe. Each one is the head of a tribe. Okay, so so as we read down through this list of names, it's obvious that those 12 names are significant. Of course, Simeon, we understand something special happens with him. But generally speaking, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. But what's also interesting is all these other names, in addition to the 12 sons of Israel, that, that most of these other names represent the families or the clans into which the nation is divided when it exits Israel. So as the nation comes out of Israel, it has some kind of a uh, some kind of an administrative order. And that administrative order involves 12 tribes. And each one of those tribes is divided down into clans or families. And the names that are listed here in Genesis chapter 46 uh, in addition to the names of the, of the original 12 sons, most of the other names represent the heads of these various clans or families. So when you begin to read in Numbers about the census that uh, Moses takes of the children of Israel before they go into the land of promise, as he takes this census, he breaks it down into tribes and clans or tribes and families. And each one of those families traces back to one of these individual guys back here that went down into Egypt at the time of the migration into Egypt. Okay, so as the children of Israel are reading them and 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 here they are sitting in front of their tent, you know, they got a little couple days to spare because the cloud has decided it's not going to move for a while. And so they've got a couple days and they're sitting there in front of their tent and they're reading Genesis, uh, which, which Moses has just managed to get hot off the presses. And they're sitting there reading Genesis and they're reading down here through Genesis 46 and 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 they're sitting here in their in their section of the camp encampment, which involves the tribe of Judah or the tribe of, of Gad or, or whatever tribe. And they're sitting in that tribe, but they're not just sitting with that tribe, but they're sitting within a section of that tribe that represents a certain family. And this guy is a, you know, is a Belhite or whatever he is. And he's reading down through this list of names and he goes, oh, there's dad. <laughs> there's the guy who founded, who started this family of which I am a part. So that's one of the things that the writer is here is trying to communicate is we all come from this one source. We all come from this one cohesive family that went down into Egypt. It was the beginning. But as I mentioned, it also has the sense of smallness. When Moses compares what went into Egypt to what came out of Egypt, this really kind of looks like a little thing. And as as Jacob and his sons and their families went into Egypt and traveled to Goshen and began to set up uh, their households and uh, in, in Goshen and began just life in Egypt for the first time. Here they are. They're just a small group of about 70 people in this vast nation of Egyptians. 
But God has made these remarkable promises, first to Abraham and then to Isaac and subsequently to Jacob and even as recently as Beersheba on their way to, way to Egypt. He's made this promise that they're going to be a great nation. But they don't look like a great nation, do they? They're just this little group of 70 people completely overwhelmed and outnumbered by all the Egyptians around them. But God has made a promise that He is going to make them a great nation. Now, it would be very easy if you were one of these people in this chapter here. It would be very easy to look around you and just see this handful of people that are going down into Egypt and to kind of be, and then to look at the Egyptians and the scale of the Egyptian culture and society and the, this great nation and to be overwhelmed by that. In addition to that, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on here. But in addition to that, remember clear back in Genesis chapter 10, we encountered the table of nations. And in Genesis chapter 10, God lists for us all the nations that were existent in the world at that time. Okay? And when we took time, we took, I think, a whole Sunday on, uh, on that one chapter, on that one passage, the, the, the list of, ten, of 70 nations, and there were 70 of them. And they represented the whole world. They represented the whole population of the whole world. And, and they were identified as a people. Each nation was identified as a people with a place. And that's how they were identified as a nation. They were a distinct people in a distinct place. And when we looked at Genesis chapter 10, again, thinking about how would the children of Israel read chapter 10, as they're out there in the wilderness, walking around through the wilderness, how would chapter 10 strike them? And remember, there was something that was dramatic and significant about that list of nations in chapter 10 that would strike to the heart of any Israelite in the wilderness. They aren't in the list. They are not in the list. But now we have a family of people going down into Egypt and there are 70 of them. And so another significance of this number 70 is even though they are small, it's like God is saying to the children of Israel, remember that list of 70 nations and you weren't included? Well, now I am making you a nation. And you are going to be a great nation and through you, all these other nations of the world will be blessed. In one sense, you will be the greatest nation. Because I am going to do things in and through you that I am not doing in any of those other nations. But if you are one of these 70 people going down into Egypt, it doesn't look like that, does it? And what strikes me about that, or what struck me this week as I was thinking about that, last couple of weeks as I was thinking about that, was how we need to learn not to despise the day of small things. Remember back there at the end of the Old Testament after the children of Israel have been gone into exile and they come back and... and and uh, they kind of come back in waves from Babylon and they come back into the promised land. 
and, and they set about first building a wall under Nehemiah, and they build the wall. And then the next thing they set about doing is rebuilding the temple. Remember that? And Ezra leads them in the rebuilding of the temple. And they lay out the foundation of the temple. This new temple that's going to replace Solomon's temple. And they lay the foundation and then they have a celebration because they've laid the foundation of this new temple to replace the temple of Solomon, which has been destroyed. But... And there's all this noise that's going on during this celebration. But what's striking about the noise, uh, Habakkuk and, and Ezra and Habakkuk tell us, what's striking about the noise is that it's a mixture of joy and weeping. And there are the, the young people there, the new folk, they're all excited because the temple is being rebuilt. But the old people, the people who were there 70 years ago and had seen the old temple, they're weeping. Because they recognize that this new temple is so inferior to the temple it was replacing. And one of the great leaders of the day was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zechariah the prophet comes to Zerubbabel and he speaks to him in Zechariah chapter 4. And he speaks to him and, he's, and, and, and he speaks to him about, about those that despise the day of small things. But he goes on to tell him, he says... He says, don't, you don't, don't think that way. Because I am doing a glorious and a majestic and, and wonderful thing. And, and the Spirit of God is here and the Spirit of God is moving. And the Spirit of God is accomplishing a new thing in Israel that will be far greater than anything you've seen before. And he says, who is he who despises the day? of small things. Zechariah 4, I think it's about verse 10 or so. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking how we live in a day of small things, don't we? We look back at the things that happened in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament and and then we look back over church history and and I don't know if you're like me, but I, I suppose you are you just instinctively long for those days of great things. You know, you read Acts chapter 2. You read about Pentecost. You read about 5,000 people getting saved in one day. You read about the expansion of the church. Or you, or you read church history and you read about, about the expansion of the church throughout the world in the early centuries, even in spite of 300 years of persecution. And you read about guys like, like John Wycliffe and, and, and how they, the, the, the church was so enraged at what he had done is after he died, they, they dug him up and they burned him and they threw his ashes on the Thames River. And one writer has said that they didn't realize that just as the Thames River was carrying the ashes of Wycliffe out throughout the entire world, so the work and words of Wycliffe were being distributed throughout the entire world. This was 150 years before what we think of as the Reformation. And then there's guys like John Huss in, in, in what we think of today as Czechoslovakia. And, and guys like Luther. And we think about those. We read about those guys. Or we, we read about guys like Jonathan Edwards and the first great awakening in, in America that so transformed the culture by people coming to Christ 
that it shaped the entire American experience and all of American history. And we read about these great things and, and we just instinctively long for great days, don't we? Or we read about guys like, like Hudson Taylor or Goforth of China or people like this who, who, who went into other places of the world and preached the gospel of Christ and transformed the cultures in which they lived. I know people. Maybe you know people. God has used to do great things. I have a fellow I, I knew, and, and we were many years ago. We were involved in a in a in a big conflict in a in a in a Christian organization. It was a traumatic experience, and he was on the other side of the issue for me at the time. And uh, eventually, all that has gotten worked out. But this guy has gone on, and 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 he's my age, okay? And and he's gone on, and he's in he's in Austria now, and he leads one of the largest evangelical denominations in the entire in all of Europe. This is just a guy that was just a friend of mine 40 years ago, or an acquaintance, I should say. And and we look around and we see all these great things that God has done in the past through people of the past. And then we look at our own little lives and we think, I live in a day of small things. And it's kind of ironic that we should say that because here in America, at least, the church is really big. It's massive. And we do a lot of stuff. But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking as I'm thinking that the church today is more kind of in a holding pattern. It's more like the church today is more like a restraining influence rather than a transforming influence in our culture. And I don't know about you, but I wish the church today was a transforming influence in our culture. Where we were, where the gospel that we preached was so powerful, so life transforming, that like in the first great awakening, that it would actually transform the culture and shape the mentality of the society. It's not doing that. It's a day of small things. But it was a day of small things when Israel went down into Egypt. And as I thought about, as I thought about this and I meditated on this, I thought there are so many things that we do or that we can do or that we have the opportunity to do that are just small little acts of faithfulness. And it's very easy for us in a day of small things to look at those little acts of faithfulness that are presented to us to do and to think it doesn't matter because this is a day of small things. And if I neglect to be faithful here, or if I neglect to be faithful there, nobody will notice. 
and it won't make any difference. What if Zerubbabel had thought that way? What if he had thought, well, you know, this is just a little thing. Maybe it doesn't matter. But folks, it does matter. You know why it matters? It matters because we don't know what the long-term consequences of our faithfulness will be. We don't know. But let me give you a little clue. When you are faithful to God in the little things to which He calls you to be faithful, loving a neighbor, Faithfulness in paying your taxes. Integrity on the job. Sharing a testimony where you can share a testimony. Or offering to pray for someone who needs to be prayed for. Even an unbeliever. When, when you choose to be faithful in those little things, how long do the consequences of those little things last? You know how long they last? Forever. Forever and ever. Eons upon eons. Time without end. Now, is that a little thing? It's not a little thing, is it? Because that little act of faithfulness which God somehow uses and transforms has an eternal consequence. That's why Paul stresses so much to be careful what kind of a place we build. Because there's, there's places we build out of wood and stubble and those places, yeah, they're going, you know, they're going to end. But when we are simply faithful to Him, we build with gold and silver and precious stones which last forever and forever and forever eons upon eons Time without end. So even my littlest acts of faithfulness have profound eternal implications. Well, so Jacob and his family go down into Egypt. And as they're approaching Egypt, what does he do? What does Jacob do? He sends Judah ahead of them. To do what? To point the way to the land of Goshen. Now, actually, that's a difficult phrase to translate, but most of the translators translate it somewhere along that line. And so it appears that the sense is that Judah is going to be kind of their guide. He's going to make sure they get where they need to go. Wait a minute. This is Judah? This is Judah who lost his way? This is Judah who 
Remember clear back there in chapter 38? This is Judah who moved away from the family because he couldn't stand the guilt of what he'd done with Joseph. And he moved off and he lived with the Canaanites, remember? And he had this Canaanite friend and he married a Canaanite woman and he just lived in the world. This is the guy we're going to ask to show us the way. A guy who so totally lost his own way. But that's not the end of the story of Judah, is it? Because in fact, it had been Judah and not Joseph who led the way into reconciliation. Remember? It was Judah who stood on the line for Benjamin and for his father. And he said to Joseph, he says, you can take me. You can make me a slave. Just whatever you do, spare the life of my father. Do not keep Benjamin. Keep me. If you keep Benjamin, my father will die. And it was Judah's heartfelt, humble, broken, self-sacrificing plea to Joseph that triggered the reconciliation. And I don't know at this point in the story how much Jacob knows about that. But I suspect that the reason that he asked Judah to go to Joseph and to point the way into Goshen is because he knew what Judah had done. And I'm comforted and I'm encouraged by this. Because here's a man who had so miserably lost his way. Who now has become, by the grace of God, one who points the way for others. And so there's hope for me. And there's hope for you. Because we have lost our way. But if we, like, like Judah, learn through our brokenness to walk in humility and to sacrifice our lives for others, we can become a guide to the blind. And so Judah becomes here in this passage a guide for his family. Well, there's a lot more in this passage. And I was going to talk about it all day, but we're not going to get it all done. Okay. So next week we'll come back and we'll finish this chapter before we go on to the next chapter the following week. So we'll just, next week we'll just finish chapter 46 because there's a lot more meat in this chapter that we want to think about. So uh, we'll let that do for today. Thank you.